As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. And Bruce, it's a it's a new day for the Audible. I guess you could call this the Audible 3.0 as we officially join the podcast officially joins the Athletics Podcast Network. And this is how it benefits you, our loyal listener. We actually have halfway decent audio now. <laughs> or even better than that. Tell me more, Stu. How did this happen? Well, first of all, I just want to welcome a new member of the Audible team, John Hayes. He is our producer. He is the czar of all uh, college football podcasts for The Athletic. And if you recognize his name, that's because he was Paul Feinbaum's producer for uh, many years. John, what do you think is going to be more challenging or what, what is more challenging, screening Feinbaum callers or teaching Bruce and I how to use podcast equipment? Nothing gets worse, I promise you, than screening fine mom callers. Four hours of phone calls with lines that just simply do not stop ringing. You guys are having issues there, as bad as those issues are. Uh, screening fine mom callers is much worse, trust me. Well, hey, if, if we are hurting for a guest one week, if we're trying to figure out how to fill content, maybe you can hook us up with uh, Phyllis or uh, I-Man or, or one of your other regulars, who I'm sure are still in your Rolodex. Yeah, oh, don't worry. Uh, the first lady of Feinbaum, Phyllis from Olga. Uh, she's at the top of my contacts and favorites. Uh, she's the best. So anytime you want to have her on the show, uh, let me know. I will say this, though, guys. We've had quite the the launch, a, a number of podcasts hitting The Athletic over the last three weeks. But the network has, has felt a, a bit incomplete. And the reason why is because the Audible uh, is not there yet. And finally, it is. So it's a, it's a great day for The Athletic College Football. Hey, before we... Uh... Before we move on, Stu, I think we should point out there is an added bonus, right, if you are an athletic subscriber? Yes. So, first of all, this episode that we're doing here on September 9th should be the first one to pop up on your feed on the Athletic app. Uh, You can go to the podcast tab and press follow, and you will automatically know when a new episode pops in there. Now, you'll still be able to listen to this Monday episode, the full episode, wherever you have already gotten the Audible. But Bruce, tell them the good news about more Audible. 
Yes, so we, for, for our loyal uh, subscribers to The Athletic, there will be a bonus edition of The Audible each week. And so we, it's just a little something more for, for the folks who have uh, who've already joined and signed up and subscribed and, and then the shameless shilling bit here. Uh, if, you already, if you already do, great. And if you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? There's a lot more than just Stu and I, certainly. Uh, we have a ton of great content and a lot of great podcasts now. So if you haven't signed up, now's a great time to do it. I can tell you this. The first thing I did Monday morning was uh, listen to David Ubbin uh, and Joe Rexroad dissect the latest Tennessee debacle on the Vol for Life podcast. And there's a dozen more like that. And our friend Andy Staples has his own show that actually goes up late Saturday night, early Sunday morning, every week during the season. So no shortage of things for you guys to listen to. Uh, so this was a rare weekend where both Bruce and I were at games and both proved to be pretty eventful. All right, Stu. So I have to admit, I was a little jealous that you were going to be in Austin, Texas, for the for the game of at least of the of the first month of the season, as I saw it, which was LSU with the revamped offense with Joe Brady coming in there against Texas. Sam Ellinger, great quarterback. The whole, you know, look, they took it to Georgia last year in the Sugar Bowl. The whole we're back. I think I am believing it. Tell me. You got firsthand. First of all, what was the atmosphere like? It sounded and seemed great from from watching the game on TV. What was it like to actually be there? Yeah, it was a big time atmosphere, and of course, uh, that that meant for a lot of people bringing up just how much better it's gotten there. Now, it it didn't occur to me until I got there that because I've been through Austin several times over the last few years in the spring for off season visits, but I was like, when was the last time I was here for a game? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it. I think it might have been as far back as the Colt McCoy, uh, Texas, Ohio State, I think it was 1-2 or 2-3 game way back, like 2006. That was like 12 now years they were ago. Saying, now, one part of the reason is, well, there's two reasons, right? One, Texas got to be pretty mediocre uh, and, and stayed that way for most of this decade. But even when they still had it going, what would be the biggest game every year? Oklahoma. So I went to several of those uh, in Dallas, and I certainly remember seeing Texas on the road. But a Texas home game, it had been a long time. And it's just it's just a much different atmosphere there. I give a lot of credit to Chris Del Conte, uh, the athletic director who came over from TCU, who's done a lot of things to help with that. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was about the fact that it was two top ten teams that don't usually get to play each other. Um, game day being there for the first time in a decade. So the atmosphere was great. So were the Torchies Tacos and I pour the game, by the way. Shout out. Crossroads Taco. Best taco you could possibly have. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the obvious winner of the weekend or the, the breakout star of the weekend was Joe Burrow, who had a decent first season for LSU last year. But I don't, I don't know that the average college football fan came away thinking, uh, you know, this guy is a star. And then, of course, you more than anybody has been talking up Joe Brady and all the changes to the offense this offseason, and we got to see that play out. I mean, So are you a believer uh, in Joe Brady now? Yes, of course. And, you know, I give Ed Ogeron a lot of credit. He acknowledged this in the postgame that you know, he said, this is the vision I had for this offense when I took over, which would have been in 2017. But there were a couple miscues to get where they are now. He, first, it was Matt Canada. That didn't work out. He goes back to Steve Ensminger. Last year, they did do some different things, but not that different. And then this is just 
this is an entirely different offense, but you know, you can talk about scheme all you want. You've got to have the quarterback. And I think what really stands out is LSU's got one heck of a group of receivers right now. And that game was the first time in school history that they had three 100 yard receivers. Um, the play of the game, obviously the third and 17, uh, no running up the middle and eat some clock and punt it. They go for it. And I was on the LSU sideline at that point, and it looked like Burrow was going to get creamed at one point, but no, he stood up, stood tall, uh, moved in the pocket, and delivers a dart to Justin Jefferson, not Jordan Jefferson, his older brother, Justin Jefferson, who breaks it for the 61-yard touchdown. So obviously big performance for LSU. It's not like Sam Ellinger didn't do anything himself. I mean, they could not, LSU by Ogeron's own admission, could not stop Texas in the second half. They scored on every possession. Um, but, you know, the hard thing about that is LSU also had pretty much its entire, you name the key defender, they either cramped up or left with an ankle sprain or whatnot during the second half. So it's hard to say, like, well, should we be worried about LSU's defense? They gave up all these yards to Texas. Um, or was that kind of one of these products of 102-degree 102 degree, 102 weather guys just I mean, they were gassed. They, you know, they flat out couldn't do, couldn't stop them in the second half. Well, a couple of things just from watching the game and talking to some of the folks on the LSU staff since there, uh, since the game. So I agree with you. I think the most underrated aspect of what emerged Saturday night is that receiving core is big, big time. You know, it's going to get overshadowed by the, by the guys uh, at Alabama. At least it will, unless they can prove, you know, they can prove that they can overtake the tide, and you know, in a month and a half, when it or two months when they play. But they, uh, Justin Jefferson, is an interesting kid. I mean, he was not; he was the last recruit that Ogeron signed. He was the lowest-rated kid in the class, and you watch him, and he's been the best receiver they've had really since he's got there, and just a really good route runner and a really competitive, tough kid. And he's a go-to guy. And the other two guys, Jamar Chase. When I was down there in the spring for a week, Jamar Chase was creating a lot of buzz. They couldn't cover him. He's physical. He's tough. And Terrace Marshall, who was actually the highest-rated recruit of uh, receiver recruit of all of them, he was injured his senior year. I took him a little while to get to get back from it. Uh, he's 100% now. I think he's a legit uh, big play guy. So you put those three guys together with with Burrow, who plays with a ton of confidence and he's accurate. He's a better athlete than I think a lot of people realize. I mean, they're really dangerous, and what you know, what what you see with this group, I think, is it is really aggressive, and that comes from Brady, the pass game coordinator, what he brought in from the Saints, and also some of the stuff he got from being under Joe Moorhead at Penn State. Um, and this is this is what Ogeron talked about for a long time. I mean, I remember him telling me about Joe Brady long before he ever had an opening about what he thought of this guy. And so, and look, if, if you haven't read the athletic story on Joe Brady from about two months ago, I would encourage you to do it just because he kind of outlay, outlines where he came from and how he got up on his radar. Now, the other part of this, which I think, you know, you hit on is this in the second half, LSU's defense really had no answers. And it felt a lot like the Texas A&M LSU overtime game last year was just back and forth. The only difference was... LSU had an advantage because they they were benefited by a drop ball by Keontae Ingram in the red zone at the goal line. And then they had a great goal line stand, you know, a couple minutes later. So t Texas got no points out of it. 
I think if you're an LSU fan, I think your biggest takeaway, you can be excited about the offense, but you can think, wow, we won against a top 10 team on the road with Grant Delpit playing a really bad game, who's arguably the best defensive player in the country, and with, with Christian Fulton, one of the best cornerbacks in the country, playing a really bad game. I mean, if those guys, and if and when those guys get it cranked up, I mean, the defense will be markedly better. We saw the guy, the one guy on defense who really did shine in there was Derek Stingley, the true freshman cornerback who they've been raving about since he got there. I mean, he played really well. The defensive line did not get great pass rush. I mean, when Aranda did a few things that to scheme up some stuff, they got pressure on Sam Ellinger, but it was... It was not a uh, it was not a great night from that defense, but I, like I said, I think there's enough playmakers there who will uh, who will come into form better. But not a great night for Grant Delpit and Fulton. On the other side, is it- can I just say something real quick there? Yes. You know, Fulton did get hurt late in the first half and left. I mean, it wasn't even late in the first half. At some point in the first half, he got hurt. Uh, he left for a little bit. He came back, and I don't think he was the same after that. Delpit though. That you know that was puzzling because he is supposed to be one of, if not the best, defensive players in the country. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this: I thought about this a little bit. Um, is Sam Ellinger's comments about Texas being back? I actually think, and it's maybe maybe hypocritical to say this one. I won't let anybody say it on the Miami part of it, but I actually do think Texas is back. I watched them. This was the best offensive line that. Texas, this is the best Texas has looked on the offensive line in about a dozen years. And I think even without Colin Johnson having a big game, we saw uh, Devin Duvernay really step up. I don't know, you know, Keontae Ingram wasn't able to do much, but I thought the offensive line against a good, not a great LSU defensive line really was impressive. And I think I'm going to give them a little bit of a pass on the secondary because they're so young. And I think they're, I think this is such a big-time group of receivers and a really good scheme right now that I think was just kind of rolling. I feel like this Texas team, like I'm not backing off that they're going to win the Big Big 12 and go to the playoff after what I saw uh, on Saturday night. Are you with me? Wait, 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 wait. Playoff. So you, you think they're running the table from here, basically? I think so, yeah. That's a bold, bold prediction. I admire it. Um, I'm sticking with Oklahoma. But nothing about the game soured me on Texas in any way. I was, you know, you talk, we can talk more about the Clemson A&M game in a, in a minute. But, you know, that's one where uh, made you temper expectations a little bit for the Aggies. Whereas, you know, Texas is, is where I thought they would be, maybe even a little bit ahead. I think the only area where, well, two. So, you know, running back right now, Keontae Ingram's all they've got. Jordan Whittington and, and two other guys are out. Uh, and, and Ingram has the makings of a really good back. I don't think he's quite there yet. Rashad Johnson then, ran the ball hard. He did. And then, I mean, believe me, for a guy who, who is a true freshman who was pl- practicing quarterback for most of uh, up until about a couple weeks ago, it, you know, he, he knows what he's doing. Um, what was crazy no, I think was where I, the, I, I, Kirk Herbstreit made this point, and it's kind of sunk in. I was like, heard it, and then I kind of thought about it for a little bit. He was like, he hadn't played running back since he was in the fifth grade till about two weeks ago, and then he's going up on a Saturday night in a huge state, you know, a huge stage against LSU. And I thought, and I was like, man, this kid runs hard. I thought he he was very impressive what he did. You know, Ingram, 
the, the thing is, what a different game that might have been. Texas twice got inside the five-yard line, fourth and goal, in the first half and came up empty. And one of them was when Ingram dropped a wide-open touchdown. So, um, no, what I was going to say is, I think the only area where they're not quite, you know, the difference between where, with a, you know, if you look at Texas's roster versus uh, Alabama, Clemson, Jordan, you know, the, the, the what we consider the elite right now is defensive line. Malcolm Roach is a veteran. He's really good. The other guys are either not quite there or, you know, the, the better talent is maybe not even ready to be out there just yet. Um, and so that, you know, they, that's why, that's a reason why Todd Orlando has to kind of blitz relentlessly. And it worked at first, but once Burrow figured out what was going on, he kind of, that, that allowed him to have time to, um, uh, you know, find holes in that secondary. I don't think Texas is secondary. You know, you mentioned they're young. They are. I don't think they were necessarily bad, and that's the reason Burrow threw for all those yards. He just was firing it into the perfect spot uh, over and over and over again. So, now, like you said, if LSU's defense, if that was an indication of LSU's defense, then they're going to have trouble against Alabama. They're going to have trouble against uh, uh, A&M at the end of the year. So they need to get that in gear. But I guess I'm just not that worried about it because I know who some of those players are. Yeah, and they're, um, and they're young. They're really young in the secondary. And I, th- I do think those freshman cornerbacks, they're true freshmen. We'll, we'll be pushing for more playing time. And I think you'll see probably a little more. Uh, I, I, the one area I don't think they're going to get that much better on is the D-line. They, their D-line is, is, has good personnel. It's not great personnel. And that's the area where I think that they can be good enough, I think, to get to the playoff. And we'll see. I mean, the way the offense is playing, who knows how, you know, if they can be a national title caliber team. I think this offense is way different than anything people have seen about LSU in a long time. It's just that's the one area where I'm like, okay, they they got to get they got to get better and they got to find better you know ways to to pressure the quarterback and we'll see if they can get that done. Well, if if they can't, they're not going to beat Alabama for the and umpteenth year in a row. You know what and I think is different, probably though, Stu, Stu. Just on the Alabama piece, and this is something I think we talked about in our text exchange. This might be the first time because of that offense where I think they can call a game and play it a little more aggressively because, whoa, now all of a sudden Brent Venables is super aggressive, and that includes when he plays against Alabama, and it's because he knows I don't have to win a game 13-10 to 10 or 10-7. to 7. We can be really, really aggressive with what we do and take some gambles because I know our offense can put up 28, 35, 42 points. I think as we start seeing more of this Joe Burrow, Joe Brady kind of dynamic going, I think that'll help Dave Aranda and that defense be a more aggressive when they get in that game. I'm not saying it's they're going to win in Tuscaloosa, but I think that's the biggest difference is it'll help the defense because you won't have to feel like we can't afford to give up a touchdown, and as soon as that happens, all of a sudden we wilt. What I was going to say is, and, and a lot of people listening right now are going to cringe, they might not need to beat Alabama to make the playoff because I can already, I'm starting to see where the the two SEC team scenario this this year could be more even more realistic than we would have thought because of this. LSU just beat a top 10 team in non-conference. Let's On say Texas stays a top 10 team. 
that's a pretty big victory to have in your pocket if you're an 11 and one team that didn't win the SEC. Georgia plays Notre Dame in a couple weeks. I don't know how Notre Dame's going to finish, but they're going to be a top 10 team going into that game. So if Georgia is that team that doesn't you know loses in the SEC title game, isn't the SEC champion, but only has one loss and a win against Notre Dame out of conference, they have a really good case to be in the playoff. And Alabama, as we know, is playing nobody in the out of conference, but they're Alabama, and they'll always get in if they have one loss. So uh, gear up for that to be a contentious point of conversation once they start doing those. So, if, so Tuesday what you're night saying shows. is, if you're an LSU fan, you should be rooting for Notre Dame in a couple weeks. Uh, wait, how does that impact them? Well, that would impact them because if LSU, if LSU is eleven and one, and then Georgia goes to the SEC title game to play Alabama at eleven and one, and then they lose, then they're a two-loss Georgia team that they're out. Then they're not going to be the second team to go. Good point. Good point. Good point, Bruce. You're right. All right, start plotting for that now. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame's going to beat Georgia. Just being realistic on the road in Athens. Um, as you know, I picked Georgia to win the national title. So we'll revisit that when we get there. Uh, okay, I did not, you know, you were excited to go to the Colorado-Nebraska game, I, but I can't imagine you thought you were going to see anything like what you did. No. Let's start with the atmosphere here because it was, this is, you want to talk about what your situation. I had not been in Boulder, Colorado since Chris Brown ran all over Nebraska Thanksgiving weekend like 18 years ago. So it's, I think it's pre clat days even. That's how long ago. That was, was oh, well, that was so long ago that the coaches in that game were Frank Solich for Nebraska and my man Gary Barnett for Colorado. Yes, long, long time ago. So, um, you know, it's a gorgeous place, gorgeous venue. Everything is great about it. What, talking to Nebraska folks, because there was a lot of red in town, and this, this is a rivalry that's way more cranked up than I think a lot of people not connected with these two two fan bases would realize nebraska people i talked to were like yeah we're don't be surprised if it's going to be like 70 30 maybe even 60 40 uh that that there would be that many nebraska fans in the building well come kickoff it was actually like 70 30 the other way there was like 70 percent nebraska fans in there and nebraska looked very good they were aggressive adrian martinez starts out nine for nine jump out to a 17-0 lead, and they had it for a big chunk of the second half. And then there were a couple of big coverage busts for Nebraska. It looked like Nebraska started to run run out of gas a little bit. And I think some of what seeped in was they have really struggled, especially in the last year, in close games under Scott Frost. Hadn't won a road game. I think the number was 1-5 in in games decided by five points. And you saw more more momentum. And I think the area where Colorado is is very good, like a lot of other teams in the country, we talked about LSU, we talked about Alabama, they have really, really good receivers. It's not just LaVisca. He's phenomenal, but Katie Nixon is the, maybe the most dynamic guy in the Pac-12. And Tony Brown's a really good receiver. So they, they have weapons for Steven Montez, and he got hot, and Nebraska looked like they ran out of gas. And it turned out to be a crazy finish that went into overtime. And before the game, one of the things uh, our crew does, and I assume a lot of other crews do this, is you check with the head coach or check with the special teams coordinator and say, where are you comfortable with your kicker from what yard line? And I don't know, 15 minutes before before kickoff, Scott Frost told me, 
because they were going with the punter who, because of an injury. The punter had to be the place kicker. And he said, probably if we can get the ball to the 25. Well, there was a sack on Adrian Martinez, and it was a long kick, and the kicker missed it, and the crowd went wild, and we had a field storming. And uh, it was a pretty awesome scene to be in the middle of. And I have a big uh, big uh, tip of the hat to, to Mel Tucker, who was, who was, it was awesome to be next to him and, you know, through this and seeing how it was his first win at Folsom Field as the Buffs head coach. And I think I, I told you this offline, Stu, uh, yesterday. I talked to him coming out on the field right before the third quarter. And they're, like I said, down 17 to nothing, did nothing on offense. And he outlined in a very poised, cool way, like about five things that needed to happen for them to come back and win, why he was confident those things would happen. And everything he said, everything came true. And he was very poised and, and measured throughout. And it was, it was probably one of the better uh, halftime interviews I've ever had with a coach, especially a coach who's losing and down in a big hole. And look, they, the CU team under uh, Mike McIntyre also rallied from two touchdowns down against Nebraska the previous year. So I think those players had that in their minds already. But, uh, you know, a pretty amazing, a pretty amazing scene to be in the middle of. And, and uh, if you're a Nebraska fan, boy, that was a tough ride back to, 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 to Nebraska knowing man, we feel like we're better. We keep hearing we're better, and we're still losing these games. And I think it's the only saving grace, I think, for them is that this was a non-conference game and they can still go win, win the Big Ten West. But right now, boy, that was a tough one to swallow. Yeah, the Nebraska thing, the Scott Frost thing, is a little puzzling because he, and maybe he doesn't help himself with how honest he is or, or confident, but... You know, he did not shy away this offseason, this preseason, from saying, oh, yeah, we're a lot better. We're a lot better. You know, we're better at every position, was one of his quotes. And then they come out and they don't look that great against South Alabama, and they blow this game against Colorado, which I think has got to be doubly heartbreaking because it is still a ride. I mean, Mel Tucker, I talked to him on Sunday, said he, he kept referencing December 5th. That was the day he was hired. He says there's not a day that's gone by since December 5th that somebody hasn't mentioned the Nebraska game to me. Now, maybe it's bigger for Colorado than it is for Nebraska, but the fact that there were 30,000 Nebraska fans there tells me that's not the case. So um, Adrian Martinez was really frustrated after the game, had some kind of uh, uncharacteristic comments, and I and that's where I'm a little concerned. I feel like the hype train got a little out of control there. You know, when, you, when a guy starts as a true freshman and has success, kind of the sky's the limit kind of feeling goes out there and he's starting to be mentioned as a Heisman candidate he's on magazine covers two games into the season we're not seeing that yet from him I think he's still a young he's a young quarterback and we're seeing a lot of the pieces around him are still still young by the way on the rivalry Mel Tucker had an interesting little anecdote he said I'm out in California in the off season, and I'm meeting with some boosters and I just happened to pull out a pack of big red gum one of the boosters like kind of knocked it out of his hand and and mel goes i was like what was i thinking and i, I was like really that bad it's like yeah that's the deal man so pretty uh pretty nasty for teams that aren't in the same conference don't play that often anymore hey real yeah. quick so you were part of a so i i'm in the press box at uh texas watching it on fox sports app and i didn't have the sound of your interview but i saw you i mean it was 
So now I went through that once. I mean, I've only done those post-game interviews twice on TV on the same day in 2014 for FS1, and one of them was a field storming at Baylor. It looked pretty frantic. I know, like, in that moment, you're you're entirely focused on, I've got to get the interview, I've got to get the interview. But they were, based on what camera angle they were showing it from, I could tell that your field camera guy didn't make it. You know, how, how did you make that interview even happen? Yeah, so, so one of the things we talked about before the game, because we kind of knew if they win, they're going to storm the field, was, was just get the interview and don't necessarily worry if, if our camera guy is there for that. Now, nor, oh, normally when there's not a field storm, you got to wait for your shot. In this case, it was like, okay, they may be documenting it in a different way. And so I just made sure I was able to get to Mel pretty quick, and he came, you know, he kind of found me, and we got – we got lined up. The only downside was I felt like it, it went really well. And then as I got into the truck and talked to our, our producer, Bo, I think he was the one who told me, I was like, yeah, your mic was cutting out a little bit. And I think that's the thing that's kind of hard to, to predict is when you're in the middle of chaos and there's all these people, how well the technology might hold up. And then when I watched it back, it was, it was probably a little better than I thought it was going to be. But it was definitely just chaos. And it's like you can kind of prepare your mind for chaos, but just those things are just going to happen. So it's very, it's a very cool moment to be in the middle of. Um, one, one other thing about getting back to Nebraska quick, Scott Frost, I think, had told us in our meeting on Friday night, they have to play smarter. That was kind of the difference in those close games. And they did not play smart at all, especially in the second half or in overtime and and that came back to bite them and until they can do that they definitely have a lot of a lot more talent I do think they're a lot better than they were last year but if they're not a lot smarter never mind the Big Ten West they're gonna they're gonna only be like a six or six win team if they don't play smarter against you know still a pretty competitive conference and I think that's the challenge for them is to learn from this and see if they can grow up a lot faster. Back to the podcast in a second, but first, a word about FanDuel. Fantasy football season is here, and this season there are more ways to win than ever because FanDuel has more ways to win cash prizes and once-in-a-lifetime experiences during every single game, every single week. If you've never played FanDuel fantasy football before, great. New users get $20 inside credit if they deposit $20. Daily fantasy is great because you don't get stuck in a lineup you'll regret. You pick a new team every week injuries, busts, don't end your season, and there's a chance to win millions of dollars. So sign up for FanDuel now, get $20 in bonus, just make your first deposit of $20 to get started, and you'll get an extra $5 in site credit every week for four weeks. Go to FanDuel.com slash DFS Fantasy, Daily Fantasy Sports Fantasy, DFS Fantasy, or download the FanDuel app. That's FanDuel.com slash DFS Fantasy. All right, so... Earlier in the podcast, I gave you some props for your Joe Brady uh, coverage coming to fruition. Now I'm going to give you a little bit of flack for two prophecies that aren't looking so hot right now. Uh, for one, you probably the, the, the front of the bandwagon of Josh Gaddis and what he was going to do for the Michigan offense, best offensive line in the country, one of the best or maybe one of. Uh, I watched the entirety basically of the Michigan Army game. And this wasn't like the Oklahoma one last year where Oklahoma's defense was so bad they just couldn't get Army off the field. Because in that situation, uh, you know, 
when Oklahoma did get the ball, which wasn't very often, Kyler Murray just marched them right down the field. This The reason this game went to overtime is that Michigan's offense could not handle Army's defense. The, the pressure, Shea Patterson had a couple fumbles. It's pretty much all game. They the, the Army defensive front won that battle. And obviously, if you're a Michigan fan right now, you're concerned. The other one I was going to ask you about, when are you? When is your Chip Kelly UCLA Bruins going to have this big magical breakthrough that we've been waiting for? The first one, I would say, look, I, I'm not going to turn around and go, okay, I'm, I'm. This is going to be a disaster. Neither of these things are going to come true. I'm not saying. I think both will happen. I think I'm pretty confident that at some point UCLA will get it going and they will. So they will run run it down people's throats in ways that they won't be able to to handle the counter punches because I just think eventually this stuff is going to click and that it will work because he's too I'm not smart. saying that's he's too smart of a yeah. coach and his track record shows like this is I use this example a lot even though the systems are very different there were people after the first first two years thinking all right the air raids all over the place Mike Leach you know, people have figured it out. Well, you know what? They didn't really figure it out. Now, granted, Mike Leach is more similar now at Washington State that, compared to what he was at Texas Tech, whereas Chip Kelly and what they're doing is quite different than what he was running years ago. But I just think it comes back to the coach and the belief in, in what they're doing, not just not necessarily how they do it. And so that's why I'm not like it's gonna happen. It's just gonna. It's probably gonna. It's certainly taken longer than I thought. Like I didn't think they would lose this game to San Diego State, and their offense has been a dud so far. We have them this week against Oklahoma. I mean, if they if they make this have game your com- filler material ready. Yeah, if they make this game competitive into the second half, I think that's a that's a moral victory for them at this point. Right now, they are looking at a a zero and four start, which is feels a lot like last year. Um, so look, you're there in LA. You you are definitely more plugged in there than than I am or anybody is really. But man, you are really out there on an island right now. I think everybody else is looking at it and going, not that the game has passed them by necessarily, but that 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 a the the I mean Andy Staples had a had a great column on our site Monday morning about this that uh, you know the stuff he was doing a decade ago that was so innovative everybody's doing now but the stuff and he's also, doing now is not the stuff that he but, was but doing. that's but that's the question the stuff he's doing now is is the stuff that he brought with him from the nfl it's not there's though. a question of that's is that thing. too but it's not the stuff he brought with him from the nfl like i okay. think this stuff is very different and i think it will it will start to click now look they're not very good on the offensive line at this point and i think that's made it challenging certainly not having josh kelly the week one didn't help and then he wasn't great in week two but i i do think it's gonna start to click it's just um you know to me again i i go back to having a good feel for what you guys have i mean this is still a very very young team it's probably the youngest team in in college football at this point if you look at all the freshmen and sophomores I thought they would still be better at this point, but it'll happen. I mean, the one I don't have quite as good a read on, and I'm not saying like, you know, I bet my house that UCLA in 2020 would be a nine-win team, 
but I do think they will they will get there eventually. Michigan, I thought they would have been I thought they would have been better last week. I don't know exactly where the disconnect is. I mean, certainly I did see a, the beginning of the game where you know Patterson's turnovers. It just felt like I don't know. You know, there's just, there are some similarities to LSU and Michigan. Certainly, both new and and Joe Brady's not the offense coordinator; he's the pass game coordinator. Whereas Josh Gaddis, this is his show. But they're both guys who learned a lot under Joe Moorhead. I think the the biggest difference between the two, because both teams have really you know big time receiver groups. I think the biggest difference is. Joe Bur- I have a lot more confidence in Joe Burrow as a trigger man than I do in Shea Patterson. And I think that's one of the – I'm not saying this is all a Shea Patterson issue, but I think that's where the struggle is coming from as much as the growing pains are. And if he can get – if he can play cleaner, I think the offensive line will get better as the year goes on. Um, I, I wouldn't – I'm not giving up on, on my pick of Michigan winning the Big Ten this year. Man, I admire your con- your, your <laughs> conviction and your opinions. <laughs> I mean, in the, the, this is the definition of a belief without evidence. Uh, I thought you'd say it's the definition of insanity. Uh, maybe. I mean, time. But I was saying that yeah. when when yeah when Michigan got you know was started the season in the top ten. You know, I think you're right about Patterson. I think that through no fault of his own, the expectations for him have been higher than than should be because he was a big time recruit he played as a freshman at Ole Miss and you know was just there was just so much publicity surrounding the circumstances of his transfer so then he gets there and they got on a roll last year and suddenly it becomes that he he's the savior well I, I think his ceiling is is not as high as people thought there is obviously some feeling amongst the fan base that they should be switching to McCaffrey who has played a little bit but clearly Patterson's still the guy and then I just also think there's a little bit of you know you talked about the receivers uh you know they're good but those LSU receivers I I saw on uh Saturday night were more are more talented uh I don't I just I wonder if this this just kind of blanket assumption that Michigan's got all this talent on offense is is not necessarily there i'm not saying they're bad by any means they've got some players but i don't think you know the receivers that are lining up heck the receivers are lining up for ohio state even you know they may be not quite as finished of products Uh, some of them are very young but i just don't think that the michigan group is on that level so it doesn't really matter what scheme you're going to run if you don't have the the players to do it so i'm sure they'll be they'll play better than they did sad that was one of those everything that could go wrong did go wrong circumstances but uh, I don't know. I think people may need to temper expectations a little bit, though. You certainly are not. I, I, you know, I think when you say that, I think everybody has tempered expectations. I feel like I'm the only one who hasn't at this point on Michigan. Is that what you're saying? Uh, they are still in the top ten. <laughs> you know, I know I, it's, it would be weird to drop a team really far for a game they actually won. But, you know, right now they're still considered a top ten team. Um, whereas if I'm – you know, looking at the Big Ten landscape right now, you know, Ohio State's still, you know, they've done nothing to, to, to um, think that they can't be a, a 
Big Ten title contender and a playoff contender. And the one that I think has been a pleasant surprise, and admittedly against two nobodies, is Wisconsin, who had such a disappointing season last year, but has opened this season on fire, has shut out both of their first two opponents, and plays Michigan in two weeks. So that could become a, a pretty intriguing matchup. Yeah, I'm with you. I, we'll find out a lot about both teams week four. And that one, I'm I'm not sold on Wisconsin at this point. Like you said, they haven't played nobodies, but they've they've done about everything you could ask them to do at this point. So, I mean, USF shouldn't be a nobody. USF is really. You know, let's talk about this for really two seconds. Struggling. USF has yeah. really gone into a tailspin. Right. Eight now. losses in a oh row. Oh God. Now Quentin Flowers was was clearly the guy there, and the and the main reason behind the. You know, they had two great seasons in a row there, the Willie Tigers last year and Charlie Strong's first year. But Blake Barnett got them off to a 7-0 and start last year, and they haven't won a game since. He got benched this past week. It feels a little bit, starting to feel a little bit like Charlie Strong's Texas tenure, where he's just kind of struggling for answers on the offensive side of the ball. Um, here's hey. a segue. Guess, guess. Here's a team in your backyard that is no longer struggling for offensive answers. Okay, this is where I was hoping you were going to go. So, yeah. how much hype should we be ha- should we have right now for a guy who started one game and it was on really late at night and he <laughs> looked fantastic? <laughs> And there are people going, oh, this is Sam Darnold all over again. It was a quarterback who did not come in with a ton of recruiting hype and kind of snuck in the back door a little bit and then all of a sudden got people really excited. And a lot of people in L.A. think that Sam Darnold saved Clay Helton's job. Is Keaton Slovis going to do the same thing? First of all, you said very late at night. The Cal-Washington game hadn't even kicked off. (laughs) It hadn't made it past the first five minutes of the first quarter when that game ended um how could there not be hype that was a that was as flawless a debut started first start as you could ask for against a stanford team that is you know i mean maybe they exposed some flaws in their defense in that game but it's not you know it's not usf uh it's stanford he looked fantastic um you know i think the fact that he wasn't a heralded recruit doesn't really matter clearly since the minute he got there They've been talking him up. Graham Harrell's been talking him up. I mean, I would ask you, even if JT Daniels didn't get hurt, is it possible that this switch was going to happen at some point? Because it seems like, I mean, JT Daniels started a whole season as a true freshman last year, and he never played the way this guy did the other night. No. Now, look, in fairness to, to, to those guys, USC also has a really group, good group of receivers, and I think we saw them show up time and again. But this kid's really, really accurate, and there's something about him that's kind of unassuming. I actually met him uh, a year ago before one of the USC games. And when I met him, usually on on a kid who's committed, especially out here, there's enough buzz around him where you kind of know a, a decent amount about him. I actually thought he was a 2020 recruit, which would have meant he'd still be in high school. And if you looked at him physically, I, I would have guessed he was 6'2", 180 pounds back then. I mean, he doesn't. He just didn't look like the guy where you'd say, okay, this looks like a guy who's ready to jump into college next year and be the starter. Um, he, you know, Again, this, is, this will be mentioned a thousand times between now and probably next Saturday. He's the Kurt Warner protege from Arizona. And 
had a lot of intricate stuff thrown at him and handled it all really well. I think the thing that I was very impressed with was just ball placement. Everything was so accurate and so on point. So let's see. They got uh, they have BYU, and we'll get to BYU in a second because they had an interesting game uh, last week. But they have BYU, and then on Friday night, our crew has what now looks like must-see TV. Utah is coming in there. Utah might be in the top 10. USC might be in the top 20. How good can USC be this year? And you had, what What did you give them? You and Andy both. I was 8-4. and four. I think you and Andy were like 6-6 six and six on USC, your predictions? No, I think I was 8-4 and I was either 8-4 and four or 7-5. and five, You were 7-5. and five. I mean, this, you know, the, the overwhelming storyline with USC has been Clay Helton's job. And I feel like this development is, is the best thing that could possibly happen for him because now everybody's focused on Keaton Slovis. And so what, so what do you look, think they're going to do If they now? lose one of these next two games, everybody will still be frustrated. But Put your chips feel on the table, like, Stu, Okay, here's a reason for hope. Put your chips on the table. Give me a prediction now. You get a chance to revisit your 7-5. and five. Are you staying with 7-5? and five? The schedule's still tough, although Washington just lost a cow, and they don't look as, as daunting. So what are you looking at now? Well, i got to pull up their schedule. It is. I mean, it's all about these first six games. You, you knew that there was a possibility they would lose two or more of these first two games. Now let's reassess, right? They, they got through Stanford. Uh, I think they'll win. They'll be BYU, who I don't think is very good, but right. did manage to win in an SEC stadium. And then I think, you know, the, the season will be decided, basically, of that three-game stretch, Utah at Washington at Notre Dame. I, I think the team could go – I think the Bruins – the through that stretch – it's very interesting then. They'll be in pretty good shape. I think that my revised prediction for USC would be ten and two. Nine and three. Okay. Nine and three. Okay, you're going ten and two, I'm going nine and three. Uh nine and three. Would either of those scenarios save Clay Helton given that you know he could be not only you know, have a better record than people expect, but like, hey, what is Keaton Slovis gonna do as a sophomore? I think I don't think nine and three will be good enough. Yeah, I just think that there's going to be enough USC power brokers who are going to go. We weren't sure about Clay Helton before. Here four, they're nine and three. I get it that we have a really good young quarterback, maybe a great young quarterback, but recruiting with all this uncertainty has really tailed off. They are missing on a lot of kids who they would normally be USC kids. I just think it's really, really hard unless you can get a resounding yes. And that's a playoff spot to, to sell to people that this is going to be our guy for the next five years, not we're going to be touch and go every year. We joked about this during the brief time it was Cliff Kingsbury's the OC. But I really do think that if you got to the end of the season and they weren't good enough to, for, to justify keeping Clay Helton, but they're still you know so good on offense and the quarterback looks great that they could say the new head coach of the USC Trojans is Graham Harrell. You think they should do that? No, I'm not saying they should do that. It's we're doing. It's only been one big game, but if, if you know, if you get to the, if you feel like, well, the offense isn't the offense is actually doing its part, and it's and it's been uh, a big improvement, and you know, we want to keep the quarterback coach relationship going. It wouldn't be the. It would be very unusual. Usually, if head coach gets fired, so does everybody below him. Although I guess Ogeron would be the perfect example of the opposite of that. So. 
I think what's um, different there is we shall see. If if you're doing that, I think you should keep Clay Helton on, because to me, and I like Graham. I think he's really smart. But the idea that I, I don't think Graham is is that much like Lincoln Riley in personality, and you have guys who are at similar stages, although. Lincoln Riley, I think, had more experience in these settings than than uh, than Graham would have. But I think if you tell me, you know what, and I wouldn't say this should be like head coach and waiting, but if Clay Helton can manage some of the administrative things and like he's doing right now, at least letting Graham Harrell run the offense, then I think that that's a, a more of a uh, – of a selling point, but if, if I'm USC and let's say it goes and they go ten and two, they don't go to the playoff, but they go ten and two, and you want to keep Clay Helton, you want to keep everything, they have to find a way to make it seem like we're not looking back. He could go seven and five next year in 2020, and he's still going to be the head coach because all this uncertainty, they can't they can't just live in this world that way for much no, longer. No. Well. I said before the season, every week's going to be a soap opera with USC this week, this season. Uh, I guess the second episode was particularly exciting. We'll see where it goes from there. You mentioned, uh, you know, Washington losing. So I did stay up till 3.30 a.m. Central. I guess it wasn't as bad as being on the East Coast to catch the end of... It was actually a pretty exciting ending of Washington Cal. Cal wins uh, on a late field goal. It was actually kind of fun having been at Cal a couple times in the spring and doing their state of the program, seeing some of the guys that were talked about in the spring, you know, stepping up and emerging. They they have a couple really good running backs now in Chris Brown and Marcel Dancy. This is the second um, Chris Brown reference in this podcast. I know it is. It's being hard to keep. He's Chris Brown Jr. Maybe that'll help keep track of it. But in terms of Washington, um, you know, their offense hasn't wasn't great. The last tell me what you thought years, of Jacob Eason in that one. This is a good, by the way. This is a good secondary. This is a terrific secondary and a really good defense. He was. It is. It is. Your guy. I worried because your guy Ashton Davis went down at one point, but it, it didn't look uh, too serious. Um, he struggled. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He looked very ordinary. Um, I think that there's a lot riding on him that he would be the big upgrade from Jake Browning, and obviously that didn't look that way the other night but like you said against a very good not just a very good secondary very good defense evan weaver had like 18 tackles tackles. yeah and they said at some point that that was was some absurd streak he now has of 10 tackles having at least 10 tackles in a game i think that's a he's an all-america candidate who nobody outside of berkeley uh knows much about anyway yeah i'm i'm wondering what answers coach pete might have for his offense uh they're definitely facing some questions after the way that went the other night i think if you're an oregon fan you would have to have been pleased to see that washington state fan um maybe there's a window of opportunity there that you didn't necessarily see coming before the season do we mentioned byu a little bit earlier byu had a surprising upset win come from behind in knoxville Tennessee is so much worse than I thought they were. It, they're looking at like a one and six start right now. And we talked earlier. To me, the difference between why there should be panic if you're a Tennessee fan than compare if you some of the earlier ones is because Jeremy Pruitt's never done it as a head coach. Where do you think this? Where do you think this is going to go? I mean, there's Tennessee fans who are who are 
thinking, oh man, Phil Fulmer may end up taking this over and be, you know, firing him and then becoming the head coach himself. I keep both of the last two weeks. I've half thought I'd wake up Sunday morning to that. Um, I've tried to keep, I tried to keep an open mind about Jeremy Pruitt, even though at the time of the hire and especially after all the guys that they could have had or tried to have, especially Leach. Hey, Mel you know, Tucker I, I was, was in that was a finalist for that job. Yeah, there you go. I was definitely skeptical, um, but I also knew he was walking into a rebuilding job, so try to keep an open mind. They actually did have a couple good wins uh, last year, uh, but then ended it with two pretty lopsided losses, and now they've started this season with two really bad losses. And I think Pruitt's in over his head. I think he is not. He doesn't come. He doesn't inspire confidence. Some of his comments after that game the other night. First of all, he just completely threw the kid under the bus who had the busted coverage on the uh, 75-yard play. And then Jeremy Pruitt himself, I wouldn't necessarily advise him using this analogy. He himself made a Titanic reference on Monday morning. I uh, wouldn't advise that when you're the coach of a program that does kind of seem like the Titanic right now. So, uh, I mean, it's 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 bad. Now, you know, if not for that busted coverage on the 75-yard play, they probably win that game the other night, and maybe people don't feel quite as panicky. But uh, you know, these were you're supposed to be two and zero at this point. Like those were two games you should have won, and and you're just trying to get to a you know better than five and seven last year, and you're losing these games, and you've still got the SEC schedule coming up. This this could get really ugly. Now it does help them that the rest of the SEC East, save for Georgia, looks pretty wobbly. And I think and they Kentucky can, just they, lost their quarterback, starting quarterback. Yeah, I think if they can somehow get a little bit of momentum and be competitive, even in these games, they're probably going to lose. I'm not saying they're losing to Chattanooga. Obviously, I think they'll win that. But they, if they do go Anything's one and possible, six, my friend. Yeah. Well, if they if they do go one and six, <laughs> then at least that if they can find a way to to get to a bowl game. If they don't, I think what this is all done is usually a coach is going to get four years. I think he is walking right into a really hot seat for 2020. I think they're not going to fire him this year. And now, if they lose to Chattanooga, I would say all bets are probably off. But if they go, if they go five and seven or worse, I think he's looking at a must-win big season in 2020. And I think that is going to make recruiting a lot harder as they get to an early signing day. And I think that's where it gets really challenging because. Now all the benefit of the doubt is going to go away. Like you said, that they should be two and zero. Now I think there's a lot of doubt about whether he can he he's the right guy. And I, you know, look, maybe they'll pull off an upset in one of these games, and they won't be one and six. But it's uh, it's looking way shakier than I really thought. And and again, I think they, I don't think they should fire him at this point because I think you got to give him time to get some momentum. But I think even his biggest uh, believers have to be a little skeptical after the way this has been handled the last couple of weeks. We're, we're running low on time. We want to get some mailbag questions. Let's get to the mailbag. We have quick. yet to mention, well, we've yet to mention a word about the Clemson-Texas A&M game. So I would just say real quickly, you know, the two toughest games we thought for Clemson in the regular season would be A&M and Syracuse. They handled A&M. They kept them out of the end zone for 59 minutes plus. You know, they, A&M finally got in the end zone at the very end. It was an extremely impressive performance. Syracuse just gave up 63 points to Maryland. That game does no longer seems like it's going to be a challenge for Clemson. It, is anybody going to touch them in the regular season? Are we? Is this going to be a, a, you know, how many points does Clemson win by every week season? 
Yeah, I think they're going to be thirteen and zero. I'll be shocked if anybody beats them before the playoff. Shocked. Not just beats them. I don't know if anybody's going to even be competitive with them because they're such. A, I mean, Florida State is not very good right now. Uh, Miami just, is not. Very I was looking at their right schedule now. the other day, saying, and that and Miami, yeah, Miami's not on the regular season schedule. You know, it's it. You know, maybe you know Syracuse has played them tough the last two years. Maybe they get off the mat and do something this week, but that seems very unlikely. So it's going to be a weird thing where the number one team in the country. The defending national champions, you know, that's the ABC primetime game this week, and I can't imagine people are going to be saying, "Oh, I got to watch Clemson Syracuse." It's going to be a, a really weird situation where the number, you know, the team that that normally you you want to watch the number one team in the country every week, but if you just think they're going to win by thirty or forty every week, it became become kind of anticlimactic. We did not do the emails last week, so we definitely need to do them this week. As always, you can send your emails to. The audible pod at gmail.com. All right, Bruce. First question from a desk from a from an address I've never seen before. Rob Quarry in Listwell, Ontario, Canada. I hope I said the name of that city correctly. Hi, Bruce and Storm. Big fan of your show, your insight analysis. Uh, as a Florida Gator fan, I'm enjoying seeing Tennessee starting 0-2. I've seen a few tweets about how Mike Leach would have lost the, would not have lost those games. Mike Leach, by the way, does occasionally lose to an FCS opponent. How do you feel a more proven head coach like Greg Schiano would have fared to Tennessee had that hiring gone through? Um, so, yeah, we don't – it's funny. We, we talk about, oh, they could have had Leach, but, you know, they actually hired Greg Schiano. How would that be going right now? I don't think it would be going this bad. I, I think the people who are like, oh, Greg Schiano would have been a terrible fit there, I don't how they know how they necessarily would know that. I mean, Greg Schiano had one – head coaching job in college football and it went very well I mean for the people who and this is a lot of people who I would say are in the SEC footprint have no idea how awful Rutgers was before he got there I mean he made Rutgers pretty competitive and pretty good and without almost any resources you, know, you talk to people who coached at Rutgers and they will tell you there's a lot of those kids in the state do not want to go to play at Rutgers and he made them pretty competitive. And this was a guy who Michigan wanted to hire at one point. So I'm not saying he would have gone in there and had them in the top 15, but I think he's really smart, and I think he is a guy who, who would have done a lot better than what they have right now, to be honest. I'm not saying Look he at was, Rutgers now. Yeah. I mean, look, you would think there would be more Rutgers appreciation for what he did. he's not the head coach. He won 11 games in a season at Rutgers – which now everybody just assumes is going to be the, the seller dweller of the Big Ten for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, I think now it's hard to evaluate this in a vacuum. If he was such an unpopular hire to begin with, that's that's a tough environment to walk into, um, you know, where you're kind of uh, fighting from a hole right from the first week. But, you know, having been in it through a diff- an even more difficult situation, an even worse rebuilding job, yeah, I think you would probably be handling this a lot better. Um, Here's the thing about Chiano. I'll say this quick. He knows what he's doing as a head coach because he's done it. I'm not saying if he goes into the NFL different, but as a college head coach, and I've talked to him in years past about certain situations in terms of if you were the head coach at Miami, if you're the head coach, he's really smart and has a greater big picture understanding than I think a lot of guys who go in to try to interview for jobs. And I don't think a lot of people 
maybe know that or see that side of him. So again, I think he would have been better, better than what they have. I have no doubt. No, that's not saying that much at this point, but it, I think he would have done better than a lot of people think. Okay. Uh, you know, as I was looking at what's kind of a lackluster week of games this coming season or this coming week, uh, one that kind of snuck up on me. I was like, Oh, Purdue TCU. That could be interesting. Logan Patterson. This email actually came in after the first week. Purdue's week one loss to Nevada was obviously disappointing. Looking ahead, I see just one game I think they should win, Illinois. Two expected losses with Penn State and Wisconsin and eight toss-ups. Six and six seems like a good outcome for 2019, but it seemed like there was an expectation Brom would have a, this program at at least seven and five with a nine and three ceiling. If Brom is around for two more years after this, what's the best you can see him pulling off in West Lafayette? The Nevada loss didn't really affect my any sort of long-term thinking about Jeff Brom there, did it for you? No, I don't think so. And look, I think I think they have some really good young talent. They just need more of it. And I think at some point they will get that. But, um, I mean, look, I, I think we'll find out a lot more about them as they go through the grind of a pretty competitive Big Ten West. But I don't – I wouldn't – again, you know, look, and I saw Nevada get blown off the field. You know, I kept on looking at that score with Oregon, but – We'll see. I, I, I mean, am I wrong? I mean, last year they lost to Eastern Michigan. Yeah, last year they lost to Eastern Michigan, I think, in week two or three. And then that same team turned around and, and blew out Ohio State later in the season. Um, you know, I think when you're a program like that, it's kind of like Northwestern, too. They suffer some, they often suffer some really bad uh, early season losses. And then next thing you know, a month or two later, they're beating Wisconsin or Michigan State. Uh, or somebody like that. I just think when you're a program that's not, you know, um, overrun with talent, the obvious exceptions of Rondell Moore, George Karlaftis, who's been an absolutely unblockable freshman defensive end, you know, they're not loaded with talent. And so that makes you vulnerable to upsets from, from just about anybody. Um, uh, you're, you know, other than the, t- the programs at the very top, everybody else is capable of losing to whoever. Uh, on a given week. I, I still think he's a really good coach. You know, you talk about what's happened to Rutgers since Gianna, look at what's happened to Western Kentucky since Bron. I mean, they were scoring 45 points a game and winning 11 or 12 games in a season when he's at Western Kentucky. Now they're terrible. So uh, I think he, he knows what he's doing. Here's an interesting one. Uh, Chris Pugh. Hey, Bruce and Stu, I've noticed more and more media members are open about the teams they cheer for. Peter Burns, LSU, Clay Travis, Tennessee, L. Duncan's a UGA fan, Maria Taylor, while not as open as most, is obviously a UGA fan. What are your thoughts on this? It used to be pretty clear in an unspoken rule that you don't let fandom out in the public. Has this changed, and do you think it's a good thing? It's a good question. Um, it is definitely different. And look, I think it's different depending on the roles uh, of different people who are involved in this. I mean, some of the people that were mentioned in there, I wouldn't call our reporters or you know, they're just commentators or even maybe not even that. So I don't think Clay's the reason Jeremy Pruitt's a Tennessee right now. Yeah. I, I think that's a different case entirely because he's never been shy about just, you know, talking and saying whatever. Um, but I think when you're talking about people who are actually in the middle of talking about games or, or working on broadcasts, I think you can't go in that direction. I think if it's something where, uh, do you feel like sports writers are in a different, held to a different standard maybe in terms of what they can say? Because certainly Bill Simmons, I think, was a good example of that where he was never, he embraced being a Boston Celtics, Boston 
guy. Um, I, I feel like we have co we have you know friends. I, I know. I think it's different if you're like, let's say, Pat Forty. You grew up in Colorado. You cover college sports and some other things, but you're open about being a Denver Broncos fan. But as far as I know, Pat's never covering the NFL, so I don't. Right. Uh, you know, I don't think that's an issue. And I think ultimately, it's really I, on the fans what they take issue with and what they accept and how they feel how credible you are. You know, Bill Simmons definitely is the one who who changed that mold uh, completely because. Yes, the traditional newspaper type sports reporter was expected to be 100% neutral, never mention any sort of, you know, personal connection to a team. And Bill kind of blew blew that out of the water and has been extremely popular and I think created kind of a new generation of media. Now, I would say expectations are probably different with TV, especially, you know, former players, former coaches, they're not shy about rooting for their favorite team on TV. I don't. I've never gotten the sense Maria Taylor is a Georgia homer. I haven't really either. Uh, but she was a, she was a Georgia athlete, and so because of that, I think, like nobody's going to pretend that she's not a fan of Georgia. She just I haven't seen it affect her, you know, the content in any way. Um, but it's different when you're a writer, and and I talked about this leading up to the Stanford Northwestern game. If you're somebody who, you know, if you're never going to step foot in a coach's office or a locker room, and you're just kind of opining from afar. Then I think, yeah, play it up, be a fan. Uh, it's not like people don't enjoy that kind of content. Um, I enjoy plenty of content from uh, writers who are clearly a fan of the team they're writing about. But if you are, you know, trying to build the trust of coaches and players, and you want them to uh, open up to you and give you information that's, that frankly, they they are, you know, it's kind of sensitive. I don't, I don't think you can be out there at the same time saying, like, I want my team to beat your team. Um, and I, you know, so it's different different expectations for different people based on their roles. Yeah, and I, I saw an interesting example of this on the flight out to uh, Colorado. I happened to be watching NFL Network, and they had James Jones, who's a former NFL receiver, and it was obviously the Packers-Bears game. And I thought his comments, at some point I thought he had weed the Packers, um, and usually when you hear somebody say we in their broadcast capacity or TV capacity, you're like kind of like, whoa, but cringe. Yeah, a little bit. But then uh, Andrew Siciliano, who is the host, I thought his next question was diffused it pretty well by pointing out. And look, I, to me, James Jones, and I don't mean this in a negative, but James Jones wasn't, you know, wasn't Brett Favre or isn't like one of these guys who is. Even Michael Irvin, you know, great cowboy, you know, defined by that. And maybe he is to the to uh, to Green Bay Packers fans, and I'm not aware of it. But I thought when he when he kind of turned and brought that into the questioning, it made me think, okay, you know what, this is a this is a positive in this case because here's a guy who played in the Packers Bears rivalry, you know, gets it. Now we're getting his her his perspective and his expertise. And I think if you're the audience, I think that in that case is a real benefit as opposed to, oh, this is a guy who's just, you know, rooting and he doesn't, you know, he's not bringing anything to the table. And I think if you do that, uh, I think it's, I think it's a win for, for the audience. And look, I think that's a little different example again than the question, but I think those things, at least if you're honest and open about it, I think it's up to the audience to see what they think is credible and what they take issue with. Speaking of fans of a team in the media, I was uh, when I was down the LSU sideline at the end of the game, I ran into a familiar face from, you may remember from ESPN, Kaylee Hartong, who is now a um, 
I mean, she's she's now a news reporter for ABC for Good Morning America. She was at CNN before that. She grew up in Baton Rouge, uh, huge LSU fan. Uh, and but I think you know, when she was actually covering college football, she wasn't quite as open about that. Now she can obviously do that. Um, lastly, Tom McHale, Stu and Bruce, once upon a time, earlier this offseason, there was discussion about a trip to Ames for the Iowa State-Iowa game. Given Iowa State's poor showing against Northern Iowa and subsequent drop in the polls, the public wants to know, is a trip to Ames still a possibility for Cyclones versus Hawkeyes, especially now that ESPN game day is coming? Well, you didn't get that game, did you? I did not get that game. Somebody else at Fox got that game. But I think, Stu, it would be a good good one for you. You've never experienced that game, the Cyhawk Trophy game. You ready to go? Well, fortunately, the athletic – I am not going to be going, but the athletic will be well represented. Um, not just Scott Docterman, our Iowa Hawkeyes writer, but Max Olson will be there. And he – I don't know that anybody in the media has been more hoping and – crossing his fingers that this would become the big game day game than Max because he now lives in Lincoln. He's very, very plugged in at Iowa State. So look for his coverage. I got to tell you, you know, I don't know how you do it every week, Bruce. I, you know, I, I don't go to many games, travel much during the season anymore. And I swear even the, I'm just old. These trips take years off my life. I, now this, this Texas one wasn't everything that could go wrong on the way back where closed runway at SFO, you know, before I even left to go to the airport, it was already a three-and-a-half-hour delay. But, you know, it's late, late night. Especially if you cover a primetime game, it's a late, late night Saturday night. Then it turns into a late night Sunday night. Um, i got to pick my spots. So, no, I will not be turning back around and heading to Ames this week. But I'm really excited to watch game day from there and watch the game because I always love it when they go to, uh, I mean, first in this case, a place they've never been. Um, I always love it when they go to the less obvious uh, campuses. Yes. And I'm happy for uh, those fan bases. And, and as Matt Campbell has he told us on the Audible uh, like three or four months ago, the, that fan base was a big reason why he took that job. And look, he's a highly marketable coach. He could have probably gone almost any place else. And so credit to them to, to get the spotlight they have deserved. And I can't wait to see how that one goes. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Again, um, we're so excited that the athle- uh, that the Audible is on the Athletic now. And like we said, guys, all you Athletic subscribers, um, keep an eye out Thursday morning for a little mini episode that we'll be doing. Uh, that's for subscribers only. If you are not a subscriber yet to the Athletic, a what is wrong with you? B go give it a shot. You can try it for free for a week. Theathletic.com/slash/free-trial. And uh, I know I say this at the end every week, but We've been getting some, uh, our, our, our iTunes reviews, or our Apple Podcast reviews have not been as favorable lately, and a lot of it has been about the sound quality. Well, problem solved. So if you enjoy the podcast, please go on there, give us a five-star review, write something nice. Let's push some of those angry ones further down the page. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate and review us. It helps get the word out. By the way, you can also find the Audible now on The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash theaudible. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme music is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can find their music on Spotify, wherever you get your favorite music from. Follow 
me, Stu, on Twitter at SLMandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to The Athletic. You can try it for free for seven days at theathletic.com slash free trial. We'll talk about it for years.